Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Nimbus podcast. This week we talked to Mark Anderson, pianist and professor, about the August releases. As always, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and join our mailing list on our website. There's a Spotify playlist of all the music played in the podcast posted below. So yes, hope you enjoy this edition of the Nimbus podcast. Mark, you are upright, having just finished a recording session. I am. Yep. Still standing. Still standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, day and a half of Röntgen, our fourth volume together, and we have mm-hmm. roped you in to um, talk about some of the new things that we are putting out, totally unrelated to what you're doing. Totally. And it's always interesting to get somebody else's reaction, especially when okay. they've come off the back of a recording session and are worn out. I can't say totally unrelated because there's a Grieg violin sonata in here that being, you know, Grieg being very good friends with Rinkin, that's there's a relationship there. Right. We can't, no, actually nobody could deny that. So it's, I could be less related that, that bit. Well, let's talk about that record first. Um, Harriet McKenzie, not a name that will be familiar to you. She's right at the very beginning of her career. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you make of the I, things you heard? I found her playing um, to be so engaging from a from a especially from a coloristic point of view. I found that the speakers that we were listening to maybe it was a, a slightly difficult to tell, but what I heard was she has a very keen awareness of the colors that the violin can produce. Um, that I really appreciated, and I and I also appreciated her a few things. I appreciated the tempi. Um, was very glad to hear a slightly faster tempo than um, in the in, for example, the first movement of the Grieg. Um, some of the Prokofiev. I think she she goes along at a nice clip, and I, and I think things hang together as a result quite well. Um, I think she's you. You were telling me a little bit about her some of her many hats uh, that, that she likes to wear as a musician. She likes to improvise. She likes to work with unusual sound combinations, including things like accordion. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, she's not not a straight-jacketed uh, product of Western musical education as you would find it in London or Paris or wherever. No. And I think that comes through. You know, I really think that there's some freedom uh, in her playing that's very welcome. It's, it's, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to call it non-establishment playing of some kind, but um, I think there's a certain, certain freedom that someone gets from having experienced more uh, styles and more improvisation in their, in, in their musical being than just... Uh, simply, simply from a matter of study. Yeah, well, nice. I agree. I, th- I think I've always found her in- engaging um, in little trifles like the, some of the Tchaikovsky pieces on this CD. Uh, mm-hmm. I hear a young player who is aware of the style of previous generations mm-hmm. in, in the sense not trying to copy mm-hmm. what a Chrysler or a Heifetz or mm-hmm. a Misha Elman would have done mm-hmm. with these pieces but and, but making it her own but at the same time aware and I was I was uh, equally impressed with Christina her, her pianist who 
um, did a very lovely introduction to to the uh, meditation of the Tchaikovsky. It was absolutely beautiful, very sort of uh, arresting uh, in in its in its pacing and um, just I think they they play off one another very very well and uh, it's going to be a wonderful release yeah it's a good one and in a few months time she's coming back with her group cosmos mm-hmm. who, who are the improvising group so mm. we, we then have mm. this range of instruments and we'll get the get another side so um, nice. that's nice experience improvising yourself I do um, I, I, I I love uh, the, the, something that I've cultivated uh, as a young uh, as a youngster my genesis of it though goes back to sort of more nebulous activity that had to do with wanting to pull rock song rock and roll off of the radio and playing in playing in bands um, for much of my misspent youth, and um, but I but I find that um, I mean I grew out of that or evolved out of that into playing jazz, um, bad jazz. I, I was never a good uh, jazz player, but uh, I had friends who were very good jazz players, and I listened to quite a bit of. Uh, good jazz playing but I was already always a little spread a little thin so um, I never fully got uh, into studying jazz you know as, as someone would need to, to in order to do it well um, but I put myself through college improvising and um, whether whether you know you improvising mean, over earning, standards earning money playing the standards I put I played everywhere you could possibly imagine uh, but but playing standards or playing Chopin waltzes as well or all sorts of things but um, part of that had to do with improvisation uh, with standards that people people would very much enjoy or not just standards but even pop tunes from the time from the eighties and the nineties and. Um, I, I mean it's a it's a it's one of the lost not entirely lost art forms I mean I think there's been an awareness of the need for it to return in education and it's certainly been written about as neglected as a neglected part of our education so the fact that that Harriet is uh, involved in in this is a big feather in healthy her cap and um, and I've always considered it a feather in my cap, although that feather is a little 
wilted. <laughs> but we were, we were actually talking about improvisation over supper a couple of nights ago because now now Mark is a professor and finds himself in the position of having to think about these things academically. It's a shame that curriculums have developed in a way which doesn't leave time for things like improvisation. Mm. And that's something which um, could could be addressed a bit harder. Oh, it will be addressed. I mean, it's being addressed. Yeah. And uh, it's a, part of the problem is that in the academic uh, realm, that you know, outcomes are very, very important to be able to quantify and qualify. Measurable achievement. Measurable achievement. And so with something like improvisation, it becomes, you know, how was, how was this person doing six months ago and how are they doing now? And it's not, that, that hasn't been firmly but addressed. But that, that could still be addressed, but perhaps outside the curriculum. But then you get that whole problem of not having time to do anything outside the curriculum. That, especially in, uni, in a university, as you, if you compare that with a conservatory, for example, yes, the kids are the kids. They're not kids, but uh, the young people are very, very strapped for time and very, very loaded down with a lot of work. And it's hard, yeah. it's, we don't need to bang on about it. It's perfectly obvious that being a trained classical musician doesn't, on the face of it, require you to be capable of improvising well because after all, all the notes are in front of you. But those musicians who have grasped the value of improvisation do bring it into their classical performances in a way which we agree mm. brings a certain freedom, a certain confidence to, um, to experiment and to push the boat out and to do all sorts of things looking for colour and being excited by a discovery mm -hmm. rather than playing mm -hmm. it the same way it's every the, time. It's the origins of the music itself. Mm. I mean, the music comes from a point of improvisation. It comes from toying around. It comes from brain play. Mm. And, and this is a, uh, such an intrinsic part of its genesis that um, to, to be able to play around with uh, musical ideas, even those that have been written down, that are established, that are, you know, what we're supposed to be, that, you know, recreative artists are supposed to be recreating, if we can get under its skin from different perspectives. Oh, what if it had been this? Or what if he did that? I mean, one of the most fascinating things, when I open up a, a, a manuscript of the Chopin Preludes, uh, there are bars that are crossed out. And they're so crossed out, there's no way that anybody could ever see what's underneath that heavy use of ink that Chopin said, I'm never going to let the world know <laughs> what this was. But to be able to, you know, to conjecture and to, mm -hmm. to, to, to imagine what that could have been under there is the secret of getting it, what, you know, where, where, what ended up, you know, the way it ended up.
Shall we move on to this Sergei uh, Zukov? Um, well, yeah, I think that would be quite appropriate, actually, because mm. this is music that immediately you hear it strikes you as being improvisatory. Mm -hmm. um, now, mm -hmm. not having seen the score, I can't actually tell you whether it is or whether it's written down. Aleatory in a some exactly, sense, um, right. And perhaps that's, that's part of what is fascinating about it. Is, is this actually tightly constructed when you listen to it? Or is there mm -hmm. some freedom on the part of the player? Yeah, are there 13 bars of silence at a quarter note equals? Or is there a fermata that says... Right. And is there, like? is there any rhythmic instruction on the page? Mm -hmm. Or is there simply a chord and yeah. you can play any of the notes in that chord anyway? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, should, we, should we be concerned as a listener? Does it help us to know? We probably would because at a technical level we're interested in that. If you're, but if you're not... Do you? Yeah, it would be an it would, it would be a little bit more of an academic question. Uh, you know, how is it written down? Hmm. But the end result, I think, for the for the listener is, um, sp specifically with the first movement of the piano concerto, this is very spatial and this is very fragmented, and these are little ideas that creep in here and there and. Lots of silence. Well, I think the subtitle of the piece is Silentia. Silentia. Yes. So there's plenty of that, and appropriately, I guess. And um, it, but it's it's working on 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 a lot of levels. I found the second movement having that rhythm, a little bit more rhythmic consistency, was very welcome. Mm -hmm. And uh, and how and how the piano and the marimba and the woodblock. Mm -hmm. May have been um, echoed one another and conversation. Yeah, 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 that was quite nice. I really liked that. Um, so there are lots of lots of interesting things about this piece. That, mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. How do you feel about the use of silence in music? Do you have a particular moment in a piece where you enjoy the silence? Oh, it's one of the things that. That's absolutely critical. Um, silence. Uh, how you plan the use of silence and how you encourage a listener to also become aware that a moment of silence has occurred and to enjoy it and not be threatened or worried by it. Who was it that said that uh, silence is the uh, canvas on which music is painted or that, that kind that is. kind of thing or what's you know but it's it's well i think well well established amongst people, musicians that silence is a critical component i mean even just in what i've been recording now uh over the past day and a half i have made there were places specific places that i uh put in a comma I mean, literally wrote in a comma where I want to hear the room play that, what's left of that chord or what's left of that note. Um, and silence can, can comes in, in many, many uh, quantity, quantitative forms. And uh, it can be just that slight hesitation or it can be this massive sense of space and openness. And... Um, I mean, I'm certain personally. I'm certainly aware of 
of its ability to punctuate um, and the need that we have for for punctuation in music, whether as a recreative artist or as a or as a creative artist, a, com a composer or an improviser. Um, so it, it takes on very much an important role. Yes, yes. Very few composers use silence in the way that uh, that Sergei Zhukov has in the mm. piano concerto, mm. where it's uh, it's a not only a large part, but clearly a, 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 a fundamental, a structural part of the composition. Fundamental piece. But yes, yeah. silence. Absolutely. It's it's um, as as in my working life as a record producer, I probably have asked for silence more often than almost anything else. You know, please, can we breathe at the end of this phrase? Please, could you take the bow off the string? <laughs> I sense a, a little moment. desperation you in know, those words. <laughs> please, you know, please, please, could we breathe? Could we please breathe? Um, yeah, you know, yeah. And that's, just, that's that. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the glue that holds the music together. Mm. Humor oh. is a difficult thing in music. We, and I'm thinking of the Douglas Young. Well, right. The, the Hunting of the Snark. Here is something which I think is for basically for primary English speakers only. Lewis Carroll as a, as a writer is hard enough. Well, not hard enough, but, but um, strange enough for, for you know, English speakers uh, to get to grips with. Um, I would hate to try and explain what a snark or a boojum actually mm. is. But you, you don't need to, just well, yeah, like, I mean, <laughs> you don't need to. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's the same thing we were talking about, the, the silence. Is it a fermata? Is it, you know, what, what, the mystery is, but, but the, the, the joy is in the yeah. mystery. Of course, that's, that's the whole point of the Lewis Carroll. You can decide in your own imagination right. what a snark and a boojum right. actually are. I have a very firm idea, a very clear idea of what a snark is. <laughs> okay. So, well, just letting you know. Just... All right. Well, that's absolutely perfect. <laughs> yeah. So, here we have that one of the most difficult things, I think, to find, which is humour in music 
without it becoming uh, either an embarrassment or a pastiche or clowning. Yeah. Um, here is something which it, 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 at one level is utterly serious, um, but at another level hugely enjoyable mm-hmm. um, and, and, and put together by, um, by Douglas with the Leicestershire School's Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. and Players, an institution which just is, it's miraculous that it existed and achieved what it did. Um, the idea of local authorities funding the, the establishment what a concept. Of, you know, that, of orchestras that could actually make recordings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's part of a, it, it's a time that may not return, but it was a, it was a glorious moment. It's, it's a, a real joy to listen to, just knowing that these are students. And yes, I think it's also peppered with some in- teachers performing alongside that that would have, have been a part of the concept but but by the time this recording and others that were made with the Leicestershire schools I think it it, it literally is um, you know pre-college yeah um, and wonderful it is wonderful really wonderful um, this piece written expressly for them mm-hmm. um, and you can tell everybody's having a way yeah. of time yeah and the you know the the nonsense that comes through in in Lewis Carroll Lewis Carroll's poem is so well, uh, in my opinion, so well um, dressed up with the music. I mean, it's just fit, it's so fitting. Which is not trying to be funny. It's no, not, right? It's, it's not at all trying to be funny. I think it's it, it it's got there's something very very supportive and almost integral with this with this music. He's mm. made it made mm. it work in a very wonderful way, and I find the narrator. Um, who apparently is not a professional actor. He was not, no. Yeah, does a fantastic job and uh, is very animated, but not overly. I mean, he plays his cards just right, I think. Um, So it's a lot of fun to listen to and uh, just surprisingly so professional. Hmm. Just the place for a snark. Bellman cried as he landed his crew with care, supporting each man on the top of the tide by a finger entwined in his hair. Just the place for a snark. I have said it twice. That alone should encourage the crew. Just the place for a snark. I have said it thrice. What I tell you three times is true. Considering where, yeah. where it was, no, it's, it's, uh, it was a lovely discovery. And yeah. uh, how uh, how did you do, you discovered it from the cameo label? Yes, well, when we took on the cameo label and, and decided to um, put some effort into representing the, some of the material that was on it, uh, that was the first moment at which I, I heard it, listened to it, and thought, actually, this is to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. and uh, I hope other people will do too. Mm. I think they will. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah, a lot of fun. Do you have much experience with Lewis Cowell's works yourselves? Any personal favorites? You know, just when I go down that rabbit hole on the internet. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually, <laughs> in, in, the, in the 90s, uh, when I used to do a lot of international traveling, I always had a copy of Alice in my suitcase. Oh, really? It actually was my traveling book. Because there were so many moments where you'd be stuck at an airport in you know, Denver or wherever mm -hmm. on earth you were, or Hong Kong, and just being able to pull out something and extract yourself nonsense mm -hmm. as Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. um, and just read a few chapters was, was, I found, a great way of just saying, oh, to hell with it, you know. It's a, it's a nice pull out of reality, you know. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any favorite characters with that interest? Favorite characters? Yeah. Mm, that's very hard, isn't it? I think it would have to be the queens. Um, not the Mad Hatter. Not the Hatter, not particularly. No, I'm very fond of the Dormouse. Yeah. <laughs> I heard every word you fellows were saying. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I sometimes feel that's appropriate for me. Yeah. <laughs> The Harry Warren. Um, Harry Warren. Harry Warren. Yes. The unsung sung. <laughs> well, we had the same experience, I suppose, that, that a lot of people of mm. our age would have, which is to you put the record on and you hear the songs from 42nd Street and you hear Chattanooga Choo Choo and, and you think, oh, okay. And Harry Warren. So many songs that we know the melody and the words and we don't know who wrote it. No. I don't know why it happens. Some people's names just simply live on, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's a Cole Porter or an Irving Berlin. And some, George Gershwin, like yeah. Harry Warren, seem not to. Even though he's of the same hmm? lineage and ilk and all of that. I mean, he's that, the Jewish immigre and, you know, at, at around the same time, very early in the 20th century. But uh, he had... What was it? What did we say earlier? He wrote very good music for bad musicals, or that's something. that's what Ray says in the book. It knows he says he has yeah. the misfortune of being a, a writer of great music mm -hmm. for bad movies. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Fabulous tune writer, and he really hit the ball out of the park in so many ways with these with these hits. And uh, but his name doesn't quite quite carry along with with that. And um, it it's nice been. to have a disc where. It's dedicated to him. His name is on the front. And so everything that we're hearing is now we can directly relate it. It's refreshing. Do you have any favorite unsung heroes of your own? People who you feel don't have that recognition that they deserve? Julius Rundgren. <laughs> <laughs> you knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, classical music, to narrow it down, is littered with people oh, sure. who who wrote good music and never had any recognition, 
or whose recognition didn't go beyond their own lifetime mm-hmm. and have disappeared to be swallowed up mm-hmm. um, by other names. It's, it seems in any period there are only so many people that can be well known and the, the pyramid or the iceberg below those half a dozen names is huge. It's massive, sure. Uh, yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, one of the, going back to, you know, being a professor of music at a, at a university, uh, one thing that we have to really concern ourselves with is, you know, what sort of relevance do our students have to take out into the world that sense of relevance, that sense of responsibility. Um, when they when they venture out, um, what are they going to do? What are they going to um, un- uncover? How are they going to contribute to um, meaningful, or to, I guess to the music industry in meaningful ways? And uh, this is uh, maybe my own way of role modeling. Uh, I'm having a great time investigating uh, a composer here that, that's got so that is so worthy of investigation and of uh, in fact some way resurrection um, his music is well known maybe more in Holland than it is anywhere else because he was such a uh, important force in the creation of Dutch class uh, the Dutch identity of classical music um, being involved in the origins of Concertgebouw and of the university or the music conservatory, but uh, you know, try handing this over to students as you know, this is what this is what I'm doing, and uh, what will you do? You know, how will you mine the fields of untilled uh, dirt and come out with your own. Um, something that's worthwhile so this is a very important part from very important message that i can uh, give them and i'm very lucky to be able to do it and and now uh with with the blessing of nimbus uh publications that we can actually put out into the repertoire works that have never seen the light of day that are still only in manuscript um and now we can record them and we can publish them uh, clean them up and publish them in, in clean notation, modern notation, and uh, make them accessible. So a lot of people can play them. So a lot of people can play them, yeah. sure. Yeah. We're in the money, we're in the money. We've got a lot of what it takes to get along. We're in the money, the skies are sunny. Depression, you are through, you done us wrong. We never see a headline but a bread line today. And when we see the landlord, we could look that guy right in the eye. We're in the money. Come on, my honey. Let's spend it, lend it, send it rolling along. blues and gone are my tears I've got good news to shout in yes, your Yes, well, ears. I can't list unsung unsung composers. There are so many. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many living ones. One doesn't have to go backwards in time more than a half a dozen years and, and you could name many composers and think, why on earth don't we hear more of that? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I understand the the, the, the conflict. The, the, the conflict between concert giving and recording has never been as great, I think, as it is today. Concerts are all about getting people to come, and that means playing popular things that people know. Recording is absolutely not any longer about playing popular mm-hmm. things because there's a hundred years mm-hmm. worth of popular mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Recording has gone down a completely other path, right. which is to present things which people will never hear in concerts, mm-hmm. unfortunately, mm-hmm. Uh, and which can be discoveries. It's quite a, it's quite a conundrum um, because you can now find it's almost impossible for a record company to ask concert-giving organization or an orchestra or even groups of soloists or chain music players to take on unusual repertoire because the first thing they'll say to you is, but we, I'll never have an opportunity play to play yeah, it anyway. That's right. So why am I going to learn it just to record it if I'm never going to play mm-hmm. it? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting problem. I mean, I remember um, after, I think it was not long after winning the prize at Leeds and having um, a quite a bit of responsibility in as a performer um, I was doing some BBC broadcasts I was doing some you know live, live concerts and we had started working together yeah very soon after. and um, and I was very aware extremely aware of the need for three hats one for public performances one for what I was recording with Nimbus and one for the B, for the BBC. Uh, broadcasts who and everybody wanted something different everybody wanted I mean it could have been a little bit of an overlap but there was certainly uh, three distinct masters at work that I felt needed serving and uh, I, I can I can remember that very very clearly and I've even talked about that in the past mm. it's very and I think valuable. that has continued to be wider and wider to the point there where yeah. now yeah. they hardly meet yeah at least it gives all of us a distinct knowledge about what we are currently expected to do. Mm-hmm. Record companies have a very, very clear responsibility now to help discover music that's been ignored mm-hmm. or lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's how we will survive into the 21st century. And, and the musicians have a responsibility to uh, dig into the archives um, or and to come out with with music that they feel is well resonates with them hopefully I mean they're not doing it just because they feel that it needs that so well somebody's got to do it I mean it my my uh, fortune that I feel with Röntgen is that it does truly resonate with me as a performer as a, as a pianist um, maybe he's known as the Dutch Brahms and I've always uh, loved Brahms' music dearly and that late romanticism, the German uh, German romantics, you know, so it's it's right in there. I mean, certainly Röntgen's roots uh, are uh, uh, from the Leipzig school, very firmly rooted in the Leipzig school, and that's, um, that's fine for me. Yeah, it's a powerful tradition. Yeah. <laughs> Long and listen to the lullaby of Broadway, the hippery and ballyhoo, the lullaby of Broadway, the rumble of a subway train.
We have talked a great deal. We have talked a great deal. We have fun cutting this one. That's true. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. You're welcome. My pleasure. Manhattan babies don't sleep tight until the dawn. Good night, baby. Good night. Milkman's on his way. 